Unlike most great people from history, you can actually still look into the faces of some of the pharaohs. At the Egyptian Museum of Civilization, 22 mummies occupy a sanctified space and represent over 3,000 years of recorded history. One of the most memorable is Tutmosis III. While he was alive, his eyes looked out over the apex of ancient Egyptian culture and power. Under his rule, they built the greatest temples, expanded their territory, and established a pantheon of gods. They also mummified Hardy Dars. Welcome to another episode of Blind History, and for the second episode in a row, we are focused on Africa, although we're going back some distance here. Anthony Meter and I, here to look after you, take care of you, tell you all about these people, and hopefully inform you about what happened, in this case, thousands of years ago. You know, Ant, um, someone said to me once that the distance from us back to Cleopatra is not as big as the distance from Cleopatra back to the pyramids. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that's hard for you to figure, right? And and if you yeah. think about the fact that Cleopatra lived so long after this guy that we're going to discuss now, that we are closer to her time than she was even to his time, yeah. tells you something about the span of ancient Egyptian history. So Tutmosis III, also known as Tutmosis the Great, was the sixth pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, officially. And um, he ruled after someone who's also famous, who we've uh, referred to a couple of times in blind history and who's regarded as one of the first great female rulers. That's Hatshepsut, who was actually his stepmother and his aunt. Um, so Tutmosis comes into history around about that time. If you're looking for dates, somewhere around 1479 BC. I mean, that's an, that's an age ago. And I really enjoyed uh, investigating Tutmosis the third very impressive what I've always loved about you know the greats that we've looked into in blind history we look at Alexander and I've said it a few times and mm -hmm. and I'll JC and uh, yeah. and even Napoleon for that matter and we'll get to that now because it's it's mentioned in his life but just the speed and the uh, the, the way that he that he conquered territories innovative just very very different to what that they were used to, which brought massive success for him. Isn't it cool to be dealing with someone who here is a conqueror? He's someone who was able to, I mean, he was at the head of Hatshepsut's armies for a time. And during the final two years of his reign, he had a co-regent. But the rest of the time, this guy stood tall. He was a warrior. He was a king. He was a conqueror. He was a an architect, a big thinker. I mean, these are the kinds of people who history writes down as the great. You know, they don't just throw the great, the great around. They really only attach that label to the very best people. And in ancient Egypt, there are probably, uh, you know, only a few of these great pharaohs. And he's definitely one of them. Yeah, and, and he took Egypt to the zenith, you know, of its, uh, of its empire at the time. I mean, all the way to the top of the Mediterranean, and if you look at the distance, I mean, they had chariots, um, yes, but they had horses and chariots, but the distances he traveled to conquer, it's insane, you know, to try to put that into perspective. No, I know. And he had such a vast territory. I mean, it was everything from Syria 
to like modern Ethiopia and a whole lot of land in between. So this guy was not um, sleeping on his laurels. He was he was definitely working hard, and you know a nice long reign too. Because if you have a longer reign, you have more time to do things. In his case, he also had a great apprenticeship under Hatshepsut and Tutmosis II. But to me, I suppose the most interesting part of his story is also that we have good records on him. I mean, there are lots of surviving monuments. He came after a, a great pharaoh. I think he did some uh, slightly scurrilous things to kind of erase part of Hatshepsut's legacy. And maybe that had to do with the fact that she was a woman and mm. – you know, that you could claim that, for example, she'd broken tradition by being a female pharaoh um, and that he wasn't comfortable with that. But all in all, I think this guy really did exactly what you'd expect a pharaoh to do. You know, took control, implemented his ideas, conquered vast territories, brought Egypt to the top of its game. And really, you can you can criticize anybody in history, and rightly we should. But he seems to have done a pretty good job of keeping an extremely difficult empire together. Yeah. And how do we know this? Well, because he told us. <laughs> so exactly. they weren't, they weren't, they, they didn't mind boasting a little bit about how great they were. They was, I no. mean, Ramesses was the similar, you know, later on, but Tatmosis also gave it a good shot. But, oh, yeah. um, Hatshepsut, I think that's also a very, very important part. And you mentioned what he did and he did it later on. So, it, it wasn't vindictive. Um, if you'd done it straight after her death, it could have been that, but, but it was much, much later in his life. And when his son, you know, was, was getting to an age and he was getting to an age that uh, to the end of his life, I think he was concerned that the lineage would be protected on the male side. And so when he did take information and, and what she put up, and he took that away. Um, it was more, and he put it towards his ancestor being his, his dad and his grandfather. I think it was to protect the male line. I don't think there was anything nasty involved or sinister, etc. Well, I hope not. Do you know about these, these people called the Hyksos? Yes. Okay. So the Hyksos were, um, his major enemy for much of his, um, his reign. And they were able to conquer quite a lot of, of land because they had quite interesting military and, agricultural technology and they brought advanced weaponry in he drove them out and the egyptians obviously having found what they left behind started to use these weapons too so tutmosis the third was clever about kind of pushing out and driving out his enemies but if they had something that he didn't he very much took that in and assimilated mm. that into into the egyptian culture and the hyksos are quite also quite a, a, a poorly understood uh, civilization. We don't know a lot about them. They're actually doing some excavations in northern Egypt at the moment where they're discovering more about these, uh, these very strange people that used to live there. But they were, they were sort of like the Egyptians in some ways, but very, very different than others. Um, with the Hyksos actually came out of northern Syria, it was, uh, near Carchemish, or was that the Mitannis? Um, no, no, I think or, you're or right. the same. No, they, they, they are the same. Okay. All right. Got it. So then the Matani's hundred percent. Didn't he also, he took a wife or two from uh, the Hyksos tribes. Yes. hundred percent. I think, you know, they talk a lot about his first campaign against Megiddo, which right. is uh, his famous battles, but his eighth campaign where he went all the way north to where his grandfather had gone, but even further than his grandfather to take on the Matani or the Hyksos, as you'd mentioned. And then he brought three of the harem back with him. That was probably his greatest campaign, 
not for the action that they saw and, and the amount of people they killed because the Matani king ran away, but for the, the innovation he brought. Gareth, if I could just, on this particular campaign, what he, what he did in the, in the campaigns pri- prior to that and between Megiddo and this eighth campaign, when he conquered certain areas, he set up depots. And this really shows you, you know, how sharp he is. When we talk about logistics, he thought right. very much about logistics. And so he set up, um, these camps, these, these depots where he would put grain and, and everything to feed his vast armies. And on the eighth campaign, he had a plan in place and he, and he stayed away from those towns in the in the near east that gave him quite a rev and he didn't he, he didn't want to engage with them he went around them because he had a clear strategy but nobody nobody knew about this except himself he stopped at biblos which he had good control over and then he, he asked the biblos um the powers that be to give him you know cedar from the trees they had there and then he took these big boards with them and nobody realized what they were for and off he went but effectively, he, he got to the Euphrates River, which at the time was massive. You know, I don't know what we can liken it today, but it was very, very difficult and rough to cross at times. And then he, mm-hmm. he built boats. And this took the Matanis by massive surprise, and um, they just ran away. So there wasn't even a battle. But that's why they often talked about him being the Napoleon, you know, of, of ancient Egypt. So all of his things were very strategic in the way he planned it. So, so all of his, I think his goal effectively was to get Matani in the end. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, he, he seems like you obviously point out that they weren't expecting an invasion and they had no army to get ready against him. And, um, he went freely from city to city and pillaged them while the nobles mm. were hiding in caves and, uh, you know, trying to get away as quickly as they could from him. He put up these steels commemorating his crossing of the Euphrates, which you've just mentioned, next to the steel of his grandfather, which had been put up some decades earlier. And he returned to Syria by way of Ni, where he recorded that he had engaged in an elephant hunt, among other things. And he collected tribute from foreign powers and returned to Egypt in victory. You know, they used to have those um, amazing mm. victory celebrations where he would come into the city in triumph, something which the Romans later copied. Um, you know, on chariot with all the, the soldiers arrayed in front of him. I mean, he really must have been the conquering hero every step of the way. Yeah, on that trip back where he went elephant hunting, he had stated in one of the obliques that he killed all 120 elephants by himself. Um, in a phenomenally short amount of time. So, no, so yeah, I'm not sure if that's possible, but, um, I, I think he was, he was a great hunter. You know, he's, he, he used to kill lions and, sure. and elephants. Well, so there's also a was... way to show that you were a real man in those days, you know, and if you were yeah, a king, yeah, yeah, you yeah, had so... to kill many more animals than everyone else. But Gareth, what was interesting, the first campaign, because when Hat Shepsut uh, passed away, so that was his stepmom slash, um, Mom's. aunt. A half aunt, whatever it was. So yeah. effectively, Tutmosis the first, which was his grandfather, he had a daughter, as well as the son who became Tutmosis the second. But the daughter that was Hatshepsut, and she was married, as was the custom. She was married to Tutmosis the second, as being his wife and half sister. Mm-hmm. But effectively, he didn't reign very long, Tutmosis the second. So he only had one son, Tutmosis the third was extremely young, I think two or three years old when his dad died. So then Hatshepsut, and we mentioned it before, took over 
as regent, but she said, stuff this, you know, I'm going to be king. And, and instead of saying, I'm going to be female king, she just said, I'm going to be a king like anybody else. So, right. yeah, so I could be male I mean, or female. And she's, uh, she's, she's portrayed on all the, the historical records we can find. Um, you know, she's got a fake beard on and everything, but she's mm, basically just doesn't want to be called uh, queen. She wants to be Pharaoh. And yes, she's, she's treated as such by everybody. She's referred to in the male and the female form. But then when she died and he, when he took over, obviously everybody thought this is an opportunity, all their enemies. This mm-hmm. is an opportunity now to gain some ground back on Egypt. So he needed to do something. And so this, in effect, was his first campaign. Um, and he went north. And why the, I found this very interesting is Megiddo is famous in the Bible. Another name was called Armageddon. Um, yes, that's right. And, yeah, and I think this Armageddon name is we we all hear about it. It's the last when you have the last battle will be the end of the world, and mm-hmm. it states in the Bible. And and he had a battle there. And I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but later in the Egyptian, I think around 600s, there was another great battle there. And in in the in the First World War, there was a battle there um, yeah. as well. So it's it's a very interesting yeah. place. It Maybe not so great. Uh, no, it's a place that seems to attract a lot of military attention. And as you mm. say. You know, in the book of Revelations, they say that ultimately the final battle of the world will take place at Megiddo or Armageddon. That's where the word comes from. Um, but this guy, this Tutmosis III, he didn't um, just move north. He also had a campaign that went south into Nubia, uh, modern uh, Ethiopia. He went all the way up to the fourth cataract of the Nile. Although no king of Egypt had ever gone so far with an army, previous campaigns had spread Egyptian culture that far already. So they already had some idea of what was going up further north. And then, of course, he constructed a couple of really, really interesting monuments. And I always think that these are a great way to measure a civilization and to measure a ruler's ability to kind of change the world because he built that incredible temple at Karnak. I mean, Mm. this is probably one of the most beautiful surviving Egyptian buildings of all time. Um, The hyperstyle hall with those famous columns, um, of course, there was a temple there before, which his grandfather had built, but he really, he made it spectacular, you know, and he built all these side chapels. He built the new uh, entranceway. He built this causeway that led to it and and made Karnak the, the center, the focus of Egyptian religious and cultural behavior. Yeah, I think with all the prosperity he got from, from uh, his campaigns, Egypt was in a really, really strong position. Um, and even Hatshepsut before him, she, she built and spent wisely. I think it was a time of growth and, and also of peace with, you know, closer to home in Thebes and Karnak, all those areas that you're speaking about. And, and, mm. um, it was a really great time for, for ancient Egypt. But Gareth, a, the, the thing that's always, you know, something that's interested me is how do you, control such vast territories. So Alexander the Great had satraps. There's various great leaders that, you know, it's very difficult to control something that is 2,000 miles away or, or you know, 3,500 kilometers away. So, but what he did was, um, interestingly enough, he would, inverted commas, kidnap the, the princes from these areas <laughs> that he conquered. And then he would take them back to his royal court and their life often was better at the royal court than it might have been, you know, in, in their in their home territory, and or sort of indoctrinate them, bring them up in the Egyptian way, and that it would keep the 
conquered lands honest, you know, that necessarily don't want to upset him because then, uh, you know, maybe the son would be killed. And, and it did actually happen that, you know, a son would get on very well and be happy at court, but the next day would be killed because his <laughs> grandfather, his dad would, would yeah. be stealing oranges or something. I don't know, but. Well, but, there, there, uh, was, there are plenty of reasons for people to argue and fight in those days. They'd find them yeah. if, they, if they weren't any readily 100%. available. You know. But I've quite an effective, efficient way of 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 sort of ruling the the, the, the furthest territories. Absolutely. Now um, we've spoken a little bit about Hatshepsut, but we've got to talk a little bit about his death as well, because they found his mummy. And you know what's amazing is here we've got these kings who lived thousands of years ago, and we can actually go and see their faces in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a mummified head of Tutmosis the Third, which is still in the museum and it's in good condition. You have some idea of what he looked like, you know, he had this yeah, no, was not pretty. I must be no, not pretty, but I mean, <laughs> is he did not bad teeth? I've got to say, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. He had an overbite. <laughs> yeah. But, but considering like dental technology at the time, the, hmm. the guy didn't uh, die with uh, so many teeth missing. And yeah. of course he was buried in splendor as was everyone at this time. Um, it's a typical sort of 18th dynasty tomb, but Obviously, not a lot left in the chamber. Um, you know, mm-hmm. famously, Tutankhamun, the whole reason that we know Tutankhamun's name so much, so well is not because he was a particularly interesting pharaoh, but just because Carter found all of the mm-hmm. stuff in the tomb. So we can only imagine the kinds of riches that may have been left inside the tomb of Tutmosis III by the time he died. Um, but there's a big quartzite sarcophagus, which is red, and that's in the middle of the, the, the burial chamber. It's in the shape of a cartouche, which is exactly the, the shape of the kind of hieroglyph that would have been used to designate a name to a pharaoh. Um, so all of this is very beautiful. You can only imagine how much uh, yeah. art and, and splendor there must have been in the tomb at the time that it was built. But um, he handed over but his the... mummy, Gareth, wasn't there. The priests, the priest yes. kings... Of the 21st dynasty took them away from the, the thieves, so to speak. And I, and it was, you said, you mentioned 1880 odd. He didn't have any feet. So, <laughs> uh, so when they moved his body, they knocked his feet off when they may be moving his body. So, um, so it was a bit shorter. He was short, but he was even extra short. <laughs> After that, well, what they used to do, and and you hinted at it now, is they would take um, the bodies out of all these tombs, and then they'd hide them in a cache. And funnily enough, they they hid most of these in a place called Der Ilbari, which was right above Hatshepsut's mortuary temple, mm. and it was one of the few places they could keep these bodies safe from all these tomb robbers. So, thanks to the people of that nineteenth, uh, twenty-first dynasty. Um, who managed to, to hide away the bodies. Ah, Moses the first, Amenhotep, Tutmoses the first, second, Ramesses the first, Seti, Ramesses the second, and of course, Tutmoses the third. We wouldn't have had these mummies if That's they had. That's incredible. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So there amazing are, there were people looking after history even back then. Yeah, which is so important. Eh? And, and, you know, we need to do the same. Oh, yeah. Instead of destroying statues and ripping things down, yeah. we should be looking after them. Just one quick thing. He he made many uh, monuments. And one of the things that he's famously uh, inscribed and created and ordered to be made was an obelisk, uh, a very unique one, which now sits in Rome. It's called the Lateran Obelisk. And it was actually built during the reign or made during the reign of Tutmosis III and famously has traveled all over the world. It was taken there by a Roman emperor. I think it was Constantius II who took it from Egypt, 
put it on a ship. I mean, this is no small task, you know, those mm. things are heavy and they break very easily. You know, if you haven't noticed, they're very tall, they're very thin. It's mm. not exactly the easiest thing to move around. And they moved yeah, this. The stuffing over. Romans, you know, did they think they owned it? <laughs> Unbelievable. And they did. They moved these things around. I mean, it's still standing famously in Rome and is, uh, is something that would have, would have been familiar to, to Moses the third. Mm. But I think there were a few, uh, Gareth. There's one in, there's one in London and there's one in New York. It's called the Cleopatra's, Cleopatra's, Cleopatra's needle. Yeah. Even though it's needles. got nothing to do with Cleopatra. Yeah. Look, I think the Cleopatra era, which was the Ptolemies, that wasn't great. You know, a little bit like Habsburgs, their noses were skew and they, they had one ear that was on top of their head from inbreeding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the Egyptians were particularly good at that stuff. In fact, one of the reasons they say that he defaced so much of Hatshepsut's stuff was because um, there were a lot of Hatshepsut's relatives around who would have an equally good claim to the throne. Mm. And by doing this, by kind of diminishing her historically, he was able to make his own son a man yeah. Seem Which more makes important. sense. Yeah. yeah. But what a guy, huh? I mean, if you're going to be an Egyptian pharaoh, let it be him or Ramses. They're no real yeah. contenders for this title. Agreed, 100%. Thanks for listening to this episode of Blind History. Every episode is available on the Cliff Central app, cliffcentral.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, this guy, if we had to look at the big picture, he really was the guy who decided, let's run this as a business. There's money to be made. Stop fighting with each other and let's make this work. Organized crime, not disorganized crime. <laughs> <laughs>